Ezekiel chapter uh, 25, this is the word of the Lord. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in uh, Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David uh, said to the young men, Go up uh, to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his, uh, uh, David, uh, said to his young men, Oh, sorry. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields. As long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both by, by night and by day. And all the while, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. And took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 uh, cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And uh, she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down uh, under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all, this, uh, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in uh, your ear, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. 
Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servants, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from saving uh, with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. But men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done, my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to, to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you uh, to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're looking this morning at a long passage, but really a remarkable passage, and I think um, a passage that's also uh, pretty complicated 
to think about as a church, because this morning we're going to be reflecting on the, the great character of Abigail, and we're going to be talking about what Abigail has to teach a woman about being a wife. And uh, the reason it's complicated is because some people have made the point that it's really a mistake to use Abigail as a model, because, um, you know, especially if a woman is in an ab- abusive marriage, and uh, I Abigail is in a very different situation than, than she is because basically Abigail is caught in an impossible situation. Uh, Abigail has an ungodly, foolish husband, Nabal, and he has enraged David who has now become violent and bloodthirsty. And so she's basically caught between these, uh, these two angry men. And so what's she going to do? And so a woman... For example, in our church, if a woman is our, in our church is, is, has an abusive husband, um, she's not in the same situation because Abigail really had no recourse to call the elders of the church, say, I'm being sinned against, and this needs to be addressed. She didn't have, if, if she was in a dangerous situation, she didn't have the police that she could call to come uh, and help her. And... Uh, and which is what a woman in an abusive or a dangerous situation would do in our context. And so I think that's a fair point. There's not an exact parallel to Abigail's situation to someone in ours. I'm going to speak more about that later in this sermon. But I also think there's no question that this passage depicts Abigail as righteous and wise. And this is one of the longest chapters in 1 Samuel. I mean, I just how long did that take me to just read that? And, you know, in the ancient world, when an author, they have their parchment or their scroll or whatever, and they're writing out a story. And if they have a long, they're going to use a lot of parchment on a story. It means it's import, important because the parchment was uh, expensive. And so this story meant a lot to this author, whoever wrote 1 Samuel, for some reason. And so I think we have to avoid two errors as we look at this passage, first, the error of mapping Abigail's situation exactly onto ours, but also the error of not seeing the noble example that she is. And in fact, I think it's generally speaking um, that wives have to deal with harshness in their husbands. Uh, you know, Colossians 3 tells husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. And that's the only command that's given to husbands. And why is that? It must be because that's a common sin that comes up with men, is that they're harsh with their wives. And the Apostle Paul says, if you're going to, Christ being formed, you should not be harsh with her. But, um, but I think that also means that this is a reality that women are often going to be dealing with. And so, as I was, uh, I was talking about this sermon with my wife uh, yesterday or this week, and, and thinking about the title of it, that's, that's, that's why... I, we kind of thought through this title of the tension of being a wife. And so this story is an extreme example, but I think whatever situation a woman finds herself in, I think there's important insights here. And so what, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to explore some of the details of the story by answering three questions this morning, and this is what they are. Is what is Abigail's situation? What is Abigail's character? And what does Abigail teach us about Jesus? Three important points from this passage. What is Abigail's character? Or sorry, what is Abigail's situation? What is her character? And what does she teach us about Jesus? And and I know that some of you might feel this is a delicate uh, topic, and I think it is, but we're, as a church, we 
do not avoid difficult topics as a church. God word, God's Word addresses these topics. And so we approach them honestly, but also with a humility under God's Word, knowing that we need the truth and wisdom of God's Word to shape our lives. And so, three questions this morning, and the first is this, is what is Abigail's situation? What is Abigail's situation? Now, of course, Abigail's main challenge is who she's married to. She's married to Nabal. And the two things we learn about Nabal is that he is both a fool and he's immensely selfish. And I want to make a few observations about both those realities in this marriage. Okay, so the first thing is, is that he's a fool. And you see how the passage begins there in verse 2. It says, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing the sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Now we find out later in the story that Nabal's name actually means fool. And you might wonder, what were the parents thinking when they, you know, maybe very early on they saw some bad qualities or him? We, we don't really know. And, but actually it's Abigail who in her speech later in the, in, the, in the story brings up that point. He's like, he lives up to his name. He's a fool. And in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, the main thing about a fool is that he does not listen to people. He doesn't listen to anyone else. And actually, I was thinking of that when we read the passage uh, uh, there in verse uh, uh, 17, when the servants come to Abigail, that's the last thing they say, that one, not, one cannot speak to him is the quality of being a fool. And so he doesn't take advice. He makes decisions without considering long-term consequences. And because of this, foolishness is often tied to anger also in Proverbs. You know, Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. So a fool gets angry and they just let it all out and they kind of lash out at, at everyone. And so that's why this passage goes on to say in the second part of verse 3, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So Nabal was a harsh and brutal man. And I wonder if also there was kind of a deep sense of entitlement in him. You notice that it mentions that he was a Calebite, and Caleb was uh, one of the two spies that went into the promised land uh, during the time of Moses and Joshua. And he said, oh, the promised land's beautiful, and we can take the land. And so he was given as a reward for being a faithful spy this, this kind of prime piece of real estate. And so here... Uh, is Nabal is rich because of his inheritance. He is a rich and entitled fool. And that entitlement reveals really a, a second aspect of Abigail's situation. It's not only that her husband's a fool, but he's also immensely selfish. And, and you know, what's happening in this story is basically David, as I mentioned, was on the run. He's trying to get away from King Saul, who wants to kill him. So he's in this wilderness, and he comes upon these shepherds. And, you know, shepherds were, you know, vulnerable from thieves and, and predators. And so he tells his soldiers, I want you to protect these, these shepherds, and you, you become like a wall around them. And so they do that for some amount of time, and then this feast day shows up. And so uh, David says to Nabal, hey, I've been taking care of your sheep. You're having a feast day. And one of the most important things in, in the ethics of the ancient world was the importance of hospitality, that when someone is in need of food and they come to your house, you have to welcome them in and, and extend hospitality and share with them. And so when David asks him, one, one commentator has pointed out in, in just one verse, Nabal in his response uses the first person pronoun, I or my, 
eight times there in verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So just even the language of Nabal is me, 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 I, I, this is about, everything is about Nabal. It's about him. Though every, every, what everyone does and everyone needs, all the possessions, he obsessed with himself. You know, it's what in modern language we call it, he's a narcissist. He's fully obsessed with himself. And so Abigail's situation is that her husband is a fool and a narcissist. And then you add a couple more factors. We find out later that Nabal... Uh, at the feast, drinks to the point of drunkenness. So she also has an alcohol issue happening in, in the marriage, in the home. And this is not to mention that when word comes to David about Nepal, how David reacts. I mean, David's response is over-the-top violent. Uh, you see in verse 21 where he says, God do so much to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So Nabal says, I'm not going to invite you to the feast. And David says, I'm going to kill all the men in your whole household and, you know, your farm and in your business. I mean, it's absolutely over the top. And so Abigail is in an extremely difficult situation. She has a fool on one side and a violent warrior on the other. And I think it's the reality that really countless women throughout history have found themselves in impossible situations like this. I mean, what are you going to do? In this situation. And it's for this reason that, that feminists over the last century have been saying this is exactly the issue of women. Abigail is stuck between two foolish men who have all the power, and women have throughout history lived under the suffocating dominance of patriarchy. And so we need to deconstruct this whole structure that Abigail is, is living under. Women need independence from men. And, you know, the whole idea is we need to tear down this whole structure. And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to tear down structures than to build an alternate structure. You, know, you think of building a building. Is it easy to take a wrecking ball to it, or is it easier to actually design it and build it? It's a lot harder to build it. And, uh, and this is something our culture is doing all over the place, is tearing down social structures with no idea what to put in its place. Uh, and it turns out that tearing, the tearing down of, stru of these structures doesn't work. And I, you know, I wish I had more time uh, to speak about this, but I'll just give one example. There was, there was a study done by the Institute on Family Studies, which is a, a group of academics from different universities who had done a study on the effects of, of religious observance to family life and family well-being. And actually, the, uh, it was quoted in a New York Times op-ed piece, and a lot of New York Times readers basically went ballistic after it because this was the conclusion of the study. It said women in highly religious relationships are about 50% more likely to report that they are strongly satisfied with their sexual relationship than their secular and less religious counterparts. And then it goes on again to say women in highly religious relationships, especially traditionalists, report the highest levels of relationship quality. Still, the structure works the best. And actually, the conclusion was kind of interesting because actually in the case of domestic violence, the worst cases of domestic violence were among conservatives who are not religious. But by far, the best experiences of women in marriages were in highly religious and traditional marriage. 
The solution is not to tear the whole thing down. That would be disastrous. And the reason for that is because women need men. Men need women. Women need godly men. That's true. And men need godly women. Uh, But this is what's the real challenge for Abigail, is to be sober-minded and realistic about her situation. And that's the tension of being a wife. It's the both that men are sinners and they can be harsh, but also women need men. And so how does Abigail navigate that tension? And, well, that's our second question. So we first looked at her situation. She's married to a man who's who's in a very extreme situation, who's immensely uh, selfish and a fool. And, uh, but the second thing we look at is what's, what's Abigail's character. What is Abigail's character? Now, now, in this story, one of Nabal's servants who hears about Nabal, how Nabal reacted to David uh, and knows what's going on, um, goes and tells Abigail what's happening. And so clearly everyone in the household sees something in Abigail. They say, this is a bad situation. Someone needs to talk to Abigail. She's going to know what to do. She's going to be able to figure this out. And so as we look at Abigail, I want to point out two qualities about her that we see. Both that she is differentiated and that she's humbly generous. She's differentiated and she's humbly generous. I want to talk about each of these. So first of all, she's differentiated. And, and if you're, you're not familiar with that word, it means basically that she has a sense of who she is apart from her husband. It's not that all of her identity is swallowed up in her husband, like she disappears into her husband. Actually, that's something that has to be true of all of us as Christians, that our deepest identity is that we belong to the Lord, our ultimate loyalty is to the Lord, and, uh, and that's what defines who, who we are. And we actually, it's best to come into our marriages with our deepest identity in, in the Lord. And so, and I can, I, how you see that in this passage there is in verse 18 where it says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I have come after you. But she did not tell her husband. So she's acting independently of her husband here, and it's because she's differentiated from him. And I know that probably some of us just even reading that verse, she did not tell her husband, makes us uncomfortable. And that's because, generally speaking, secrets in a marriage are always destructive because they're usually self-serving and because, you know, we don't want to tell about a sin that we're doing uh, to our spouse. And she actually doesn't keep this as a secret. You see in verse 37, later in the story, it says... In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. So she is willing to confront her husband. But here, Abigail has an ultimate allegiance to the Lord. And that's what I mean by she's differentiated. And, you know, this also shows us that that human authorities are never absolute. You know, the Bible says that as citizens, we're we're supposed to... Uh, obey the governing authorities in our land, that, um, uh, that church members are supposed to obey church leaders, that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. 
all of these have exceptions in the Scripture. So, you know, we should largely be law-abiding citizens. That's just how we go about our lives as we obey the law. But we need to be willing to disobey the government when obedience to God calls for it. And so wives should largely be submissive and respectful of their husbands, but there are exceptions to this, and Abigail's story is an example of that. And so how do we know Abigail is not just a selfish rebel in this passage? Well, that's the second characteristic we see about her. It's not only that she's differentiated, she, she kind of knows who she is under the Lord as a servant of the Lord, but second is that she is humbly generous. She is humbly generous. And so Abigail takes all this food and she brings it to David. She's doing the hospitality that Nabal should have done, this act of hospitality, and, uh, and brings it to his men as a peace offering. And then it says in verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Great expression of humility and honor that she's showing to David. And then she goes in this great speech, which is, is one of the longest speeches in, in 1 Samuel that she gives. And so Abigail was generous and humble. She's bowing down. And why is she doing that with angry David? She knows Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath. That's a part of the wisdom of Abigail is a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think for women, that's a part of wisdom. You know, I, I've seen that in my own home. I was thinking of a, an episode that happened this last, uh, sometime in the last year. One evening, we, I was at home. I was sitting on my couch lecturing one of my children. And uh, they were sitting on the couch, and, and my wife was on the far side of the couch, kind of behind them. And, and I was being too harsh. I was, I was amped up, and I was kind of laying into them, just berating them about something. And, um, and so as I'm in the middle of this tirade, I had my phone on the couch right next to me. And as I'm in the middle of it, I feel a buzz, and I look down, and there's a text from Shannon on the other side of the couch <laughs> texting me from behind the kids. And it says, your tone is a little, hmm, dot, dot, dot. Your tone is a little, hmm. And, you know, what's she trying to do? She's, she doesn't want to undermine my authority with the kid. She doesn't want to disrespect me in front of the kid. But she also, the tone's not helping. I mean, everyone's on edge in the family. It's tense. And so, you know, your tone is a little, hmm. And it was effective. I, was, I kind of laughed. I was like, my tone is a little, hmm. You know, and it's like, okay. And I ended the tirade, and we moved on, and it kind of deflated things. That's wisdom. And I think many feminists would think, well, she should just just go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me and just, like, let's have this out. And I think you're being, you're being too harsh. The Bible says that's not wise. And, you know, I was reading uh, this past year a, a historical study of family life during the time of the Reformation, the 16th century. And, you know, during the Reformation, there was all these books on family life and how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to run your household, all these things. And uh, this, this, uh, this professor who was writing this study, he made this one comment that I thought was really interesting. I'm going to read this paragraph to you. This is what it says. In the communities of, the Ref of Reformation Europe, it was believed that marriage, family, and society could not long survive if the fathers of the house lost their nerve. The consequences of men doubting their ability and fearing their responsibilities were all too clear in fragile pre-modern society. In their strength and self-respect lay also 
the well-being of all around them. For this reason, wives were urged to humor and console them in their darkest moods, and children and servants to jump at their sternest commands. So, you know, everyone's trying to care for the husband, but then it goes on, while pastors and moralists never let the fathers of the house forget that God watched and weighed their every act. All conspired to tame the lion. None, however, dared to go too far in the process, lest his pride be altogether lost. Basically, what it's saying is that humoring is a part of the experience of being a wife. Now, I know that some people hear that and think that what I'm saying is that if a woman's in an abusive relationship, well, she should just humor him and take it. And hopefully her humility and generosity will change him eventually. And I just want to be clear, uh, that's not what I'm saying. If you are a woman who's being abused, uh, the Lord does not want you to just take it. Actually, Jesus says if your brother is sinning against you, that you're supposed to say to him, you cannot treat me like that. You confront the sin. And and say you, and uh, you're not disrespecting a husband to say you can't sin against me. That's not disrespect. Jesus says you can do that. And if he doesn't listen or doesn't agree or doesn't change, Jesus says then you go get one other person to go talk to him also or two other people. And in our church, we would say that would be a pastor, an elder. You can come say, and we're having problems in our marriage. And we, we need, this can't just be hidden in our household. We need other eyes on this to talk about it. And that's not disrespecting uh, a husband. And... And also, you know, if a woman says, well, I don't know how to go talk to a pastor or an elder about these problems, we have a women's ministry lead that would help you come talk to a pastor. Uh, the women's ministry lead has a women's council that helps her as well. So that Jen Moline's the, the women's ministry lead. Uh, Megan Wynn, Lisa Van Hoffergen, uh, Shelly uh, Smith, and uh, Kristen uh, Allen are on the women's council, they would be happy to talk with you and to help you have that conversation. And I also say, if you're a husband who's being harsh with your wife, she shouldn't be the one coming and talking to the pastors and saying, we need help. That should be you coming and saying, hey, listen, I got a harshness problem, and it's really affecting the mood of my whole house and the experience and the well-being of my wife and my children. We need help with this. So you should be doing that. She shouldn't be the one who has to do that. What makes Abigail important is that she shows us being generous and humble is not contrary to confronting sin and foolishness. And that's the tension of being a wife. And frankly, that's often the tension of being a Christian. I mean, we all have to deal with that question. How do you love people and confront their sin and love them at the same time? And you might think it's hard to parse through being both of those things. And that's why it says of Abigail back in verse 3, the woman was discerning. Her discernment includes being realistic about her situation. She, she knows her husband and his sins. She's faced that. And David, too, praises her for her wisdom in verse 32. It says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Now, someone might say, I would love to be like Abigail. Uh, you know, differentiated. She knows who she is in the Lord, serves the Lord, but also is generous and humble and bows down and wise and handling all these difficult situations. But I'm just not like that. How do you become this kind of person? Well, I think there's some clue in her speech that she gives to David. It's there in verse 28. She says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord 
will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She has been reflecting on what God is doing with David. She's been thinking about God's purposes of redemption and she knows that they're coming through David. And so the equivalent for us is she's a woman who's meditated on God's word, God meditated on God's redemption that he is doing in the greater David, who is Christ. That's how she became this kind of discerning woman. And so that leads to our final question, and is how does Abigail point us to Jesus? How does Abigail point us to Jesus? And, and stories like this in the Old Testament, they really have many layers of meaning to them. And while I do believe there are kind of moral lessons that we can draw from Abigail about you know, being a woman and being a wife, there is a deeper meaning in her character that brings us all into this story. And I want to point out two ways that that's true. Okay, the first is that Abigail is a type of the church. Abigail is a type of the church, which means she's like a picture of who we are as a community of the church. And when you zoom out of the story, you really realize what's happening is Abigail is a woman who's married to a foolish man, and that foolish man is on his way to judgment. And so uh, she's going to be a part of that judgment. But she went and she goes and makes peace with the king who is the judge and you can see how this passage ends is that Nabal is killed in a, uh, by a judgment from the Lord. In the last part of verse 39, it says, Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Abigail becomes the bride of the promised king. And that's her new marriage. That's exactly who we are as a people. We were married to a world that is going to be judged by God. And we've gone and made peace with Jesus, who is the true king. And we've been married to him. And we've given our allegiance to him, to, David, to, to Jesus, who's the greater David. And we've married ourselves to him. And so Abigail is a type of the bride of Christ, the church. And so all of her discernment, and you know, she's differentiated and humble and generous. That's not just a picture of what wives are to be, but what the church is supposed to be in the world. She's a picture of us as a community. Okay, so the first thing we see is that Abigail is a type of the church. But even, even more, as we look closer at Abigail, we see something even more amazing about her, is that Abigail is a type of Christ. Abigail is not only a type of the church, she's also a, a type of Christ. Because what does she say in, in the opening line of her speech to David in verse 24? She fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, be the guilt Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. She makes herself a substitute for Nabal. And, uh, and she's the innocent and the righteous one saying, put the guilt on me. And then in verse 27 it says, and now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And so just as Abigail, who's the righteous and innocent one, intercedes on behalf of her wicked husband, and uh, she wants to be a substitute, says, put the guilt on me, and then she brings an offering that soothes the wrath of the judge, and she then becomes a mediator of forgiveness, she is a type of Christ. Jesus is the greater Abigail, who also was innocent and righteous. And he said, just like she said, 
on, on uh, me alone be the guilt on the cross. Interc- he interceded not just for Nabal, but for all the wicked people of the world. And his offering was not food, but his own body and blood. The reason why Abigail's character is so compelling is because it's the character of Christ. And if that wasn't enough to convince us, we even see there at the end in verse 41, that great line. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And who does that sound like? That's what Jesus did, washing the feet of his disciples. The tension of being a wife is the tension of being like Christ. We live in a world of selfish fools. We ourselves are often selfish fools. Becoming differentiated and humbly generous is not something we can do in our own strength. It is Christ himself who makes us that way. And so the lesson of Abigail is the lesson of Christ. And through her, let let us fix our eyes on him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for these both strange but rich stories that we find in your word and and narratives that though are, are so ancient, we find such a common humanity with them. And, and so, Lord, we uh, uh, pray for the wisdom that we see in Abigail, that you would train us in that same mind, that we would honor you above all. We'd be willing to serve you. And yet as we serve you, that we would be humble and generous and, uh, and depend on the wisdom you give to us as we meditate on the work of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.